0: What about ever believing that God is actually there? Yep, for anybody. So we're going to be honest here. We're going to be honest. One of my favorite books on prayer is uh, this book right here. is called A Praying Life. I'd recommend it. I hope to have some of these next week. So if you'd like to get one, we'll have we'll have some here. Um, but. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, makes an interesting point right at the very beginning. And he kind of starts off at this place of saying, you've got to start off and you've got to be honest about how difficult prayer can actually be. Now see if you relate to how he describes his experience and our experience of prayer here. See if, if you would relate to this. He says, when we go to pray, so often we last for about 15 seconds. And then out of nowhere... The day's to-do list pops up and our minds are off on a tangent. We just talked about that. We catch ourselves and by sheer force of the will, we go back to praying. Okay, all right, I got to pray. Got to go back to praying. I'm going to pray now. Okay? Before we know it, it's happened all over again. Back on a tangent. Then the guilt sets in. Something must be wrong with me. Other Christians don't seem to have the same trouble praying. After five minutes, we give up saying, I'm no good at this. I might as well go do some work. Anybody relate to that? He goes on to say this about prayer. Prayer exposes how self-preoccupied we actually are. And it uncovers our doubts, part of what Troy was saying. It was easier on our faith not to pray. You ever think about that? My faith was actually in better shape before I ever tried to pray. Or at least our delusions about our faith were better off. You see, one of the aspects of prayer is that it begins to expose what's really true about yourself. Namely, I am obsessed with me. I'm so self-preoccupied. And you find that whenever you go to pray and every 10 seconds you're thinking about something about you. Or you begin to notice in prayer, I don't know if I believe this. It feels a lot like I'm just talking to air. Does prayer change anything? Is God going to do anything? All of those kind of questions that begin to emerge whenever you pray, you see those are in our hearts, but it's only through prayer that we begin to discover those things that are in our hearts. So prayer, it changes us. It exposes us. And it's hard and challenging. So, a beginning place here for us is to say, for all of us, prayer is hard. And so, that's why we need help. As we talked about last week, the beginning of Psalms, so we're doing a series on prayer in the book of Psalms. Now, the Psalms are the Bible's prayer book. The whole thing, 150 prayers to the Lord. But the very first one, as we looked at last week, doesn't start with prayer, but it rather begins with meditation. It begins with a meditation on meditation. And it shows us in order to learn how to pray, we need God's word. Because prayer is a response to him speaking to us in his word. But as we come to the Psalms, what we see is that the the Psalms are not written to us directly. Rather, they're written to God. They're prayers that are to God for us on our behalf. Does that make sense? So as we come to the Psalms, we learn to join the psalmist as they're praying to God. They're words spoken to him that teach us how to pray. And in particular, how the Psalms do this is not saying, hey, here's how you ought to pray, here's how you ought to start, and here's the kind of things you ought to cover. It's not instruction-like. It's poetry. You actually enter into someone who's actually pouring their heart out to God, who's Uh, in all kinds of different circumstances and situations in life. And so as we come to the Psalms, they uh, they teach us how to open our hearts, how to feel things. It's amazing how rich and deep the emotions are in the Psalms. And they're in poetry so that they might unlock our emotions, so that they might teach us to feel before the Lord and teach us how to engage Him. So that's what the Psalms do and how they lead us to engage Him. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at praise. Praise as prayer. We're looking at Psalm 145. And now typically, whenever we think about prayer, if you think about what most often happens in prayer, is as we come before the Lord, prayer typically is about our list, our request. As we think about prayer, we think about, what are the things that I need to go and ask Him for? Now that's certainly a part of prayer, But it's actually not the primary part of prayer. In fact, what's most often neglecting from our prayer is actually praise to God. Not just asking Him for things, but actually praising Him. Now, one of the things we see as Jesus taught His disciples to pray, do you remember that, the Lord's Prayer? Probably most of us have memorized it at some point in life. If you think about the Lord's Prayer, and this is how Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray. Do you remember how it begins? It doesn't begin with daily bread. It doesn't even begin with, an, with a request for, for forgiveness and confession. Rather, it begins with God. Our Father, who's in heaven, holy be your name, or hallowed be your name. To hallow means to set it apart. It begins with praise. So Jesus teaches us, that the way to begin with pray, with prayer is to begin with an acknowledgement of who He is and a praising of who He is. We also see that throughout the Psalms. Almost every single Psalm, no matter where the psalmist is, no matter what kind of situation they're in, and what you see is they find themselves in all kinds of situations, and about half of them are in a very, very hard circumstance in their life. But almost every single psalm begins with praise and ends with praise. And in fact, even the book of Psalms itself ends with six psalms that are just praise. Psalm 145 is the first of those. It's kind of a crescendo to the whole book of Psalms where it's building and growing just in praise. And it ends in Psalm 150 where the psalmist is just calling on everything to join him in praise to the Lord. So the thing to see is that praise in prayer is crucial. And that's what we see in our psalm today, in Psalm 145. Now just notice verses 1 and 2, as we jump in, as David, this is a psalm of David, and Psalm 145 is what's called an acrostic psalm. And what that means is that each verse of the psalm in Hebrew begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's kind of a poetic way of writing the Psalms and a real beautiful way of writing it. But as he begins, David says this in verse 1, I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. All of these words for praise. I will praise, I will extol, I will exalt I will lift up. And then we see how it ends in verse 21. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. That's a flavor of the psalm here. As David comes and says, here's what I'm going to do. And this is his prayer. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to lift up his name. I'm going to exalt him. And By the time he gets to the end of the psalm, he's saying, let everything, that has breath, every creature praises His holy name forever and ever. It's a psalm of praise. The whole prayer is wrapped up in praise. Now, one thing to notice about praise here, as we look at it, is that praise is not just duty. In fact, praise is a deep enjoyment and a delight in the thing that's being praised. Look at verse 7. David says, they will celebrate your abundant goodness. Celebrate and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Joyless praise is not praise. Duty-based praise is not actually praise. Praise is rooted in enjoyment and delight. And it is through your enjoyment of it that praise actually comes and overflows. Now, I've used an illustration on this before of a husband and wife. Now imagine if I were to come home one day and I were to show up at the front door and Ashley greets me and I have uh, a bouquet of roses there and I say, you are the most beautiful, wonderful wife I've ever seen. Okay, So in that moment, what am I doing? I'm praising her, right? Would be a very wonderful thing and she might fall over because it unfortunately doesn't happen as much as it should. But if she said in response to that, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Now, what if I said in response to that, don't mention it, it's my duty. What would that feel like? Would everything that I just said have meaning or would it actually have no meaning at all? You see, duty-driven praise is not actually praise. But praise is actually an expression of your enjoyment of the object. That's what makes it praise. That's what leads you to praise something. Now, C.S. Lewis talked a lot about this in very astounding and very helpful ways. And he begins to notice this aspect of praise being rooted into light. And he begins to look around at humanity and he begins to notice, you know what? We all do this naturally as creatures, we constantly go around praising things. We go around finding things that are beautiful, that are enjoyable, that are delightful, and then what what automatically begins to happen in our life when we enjoy something is we praise it. And he says, we're always going around, people are, lovers are praising one another, or people are praising a piece of music, or a favorite band they have, or a beautiful house they just saw, or their team, their favorite team, we're always praising, and whatever you enjoy, whatever it is you enjoy, it will then result in praise. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, as he begins to observe all of this, and actually begin to notice, this is a, a core thing to understanding humanity and people, because you see, ultimately we were created... To behold glory and then to praise it. That's why we all do this automatically. God created us to behold glory, specifically His glory. And as we saw all the beautiful things in His creation, they are meant to be an instrument, a lens through which to see His ultimate glory through those objects. That's what we were created for. And of course, the root of our problem is that we praise all the wrong things in His place. But C.S. Lewis says this, as he begins to notice this natural enjoyment in the praise. And he says, the obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. See, he had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Did you get that? All enjoyment... Whatever it is you're enjoying, that's beside the fact, whatever you enjoy, whatever you adore, whatever you find beautiful, whatever you love, it automatically results in praise. It automatically overflows into praise. Unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. It's the only time it doesn't result in praise. Whenever you're withholding because you're shy about it or you're not sure that people would agree with it. But that urge is still there. When you find anything greater enthralling, you have an almost visceral, instinctive need to praise it to others and get others to recognize it as well. Listen to this, you say to your friend. I can't wait for you to read it. You'll absolutely love it. Isn't it great? Isn't it wonderful? These are the things that we constantly say. Why is it? Because we enjoy something and we naturally praise it. And then he says this. This is, a, this is a tremendous insight. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Did you get that? Praise is not just expressing that I enjoy something, but it actually completes and enhances the enjoyment of it. When I enjoy something and then I share with you how great it is, my enjoyment of that thing actually grows. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. That's an amazing insight into who we are and how we work. When we enjoy something, there is an urge to praise it. And when we praise it, our enjoyment of that object is enhanced. So now we come to Psalm 145 and begin to discover why is it that they're so consumed with praising God with declaring who he is. It's because their enjoyment of God leads to praise and as they praise that enjoyment is deepened and enhanced. That's what we see here. So to the question of how do we learn to pray? Begin with praise. Begin with seeing who God is and praising Him. And in fact, all the other elements of prayer flow through that. But also the question, maybe the, the, the deepest question for us all, how are my desires changed? Because a part of the problem of all humanity is that we desire the wrong things. We desire all kinds of things in God's place. And so the question is, How do I, in my heart, begin to enjoy God Himself more? How do I begin to delight in God above all the other things in my life? Hobbies and houses and sports teams and children, often good things in our life. How do I come to enjoy God infinitely more than these things? And the psalmist would say to us, praise. As we praise Him, our enjoyment of Him grows. And that's what the psalmist is inviting us into into here in Psalm 145. So let's look together at the psalm, jumping into 145 and allowing Him to lead us into praise. Now look at verse 3. As King David begins to launch into the psalm, And he just begins with a declaration of God's greatness. Look at what he says here in verse 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. So he begins right here at the beginning of the psalm by saying, God is greater, far greater than any other thing in all of creation. His, His greatness is beyond even anything that we can ever fathom. You can spend all of eternity noticing things about God and praising things about God and never get close to the end. David is saying his greatness is beyond what we can imagine, but I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to praise him for what I can fathom. And then in the psalm begins to to meditate upon and to see all of the realities about who God is. There's two basic themes in the psalm that move David to praise him. They're very interrelated. The first one is who God is. He looks at who God is, his qualities, his person, his character, and that moves into praise. But also, a second category is... So first, what do we see about who he is, his character? Look again at verse 1. Right as he starts off, right off the bat, King David says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. Right at the very beginning, what captures David and moves him to worship is the fact that God is the king. Now, that's a little bit foreign to us as Americans because we don't like kings. We don't have any kings. In fact, I don't know if you've ever seen the state of Virginia's flag. You know what it is? It's a picture of a guy with his foot on the back of a king. That's what we do to kings in America, right? We topple them. We drive our heel into their back. No, we're a democracy, and we vote for our leaders. And if we don't like what they do, we throw them out. But here's what we've got to understand. You don't vote for king. You don't vote for king. You submit to him. And that was a reality very well understood by the, word, by the world of the Bible because they knew all about kings, In fact, every realm was a kingdom and it was ruled over by a king. And so, whenever King David says, My God is the king, I will exalt you, my God the king, he is describing about God that he is the great king over all kings, he is the great king over all the earth. See, to be a king is to speak of his power, his might, his sovereignty. See, a king is one who rules sovereignly in his realm. And throughout the Bible, the most common description of God is that of a king. So, what moves David here to worship is as he begins right off the bat and he said, You are the king. You rule over everything, you control absolutely everything. Everything belongs to you, everything submits to your authority, and those realities are something that moves David to worship. But that theme of kingship runs throughout the psalm. Verses 11 through 13, look over at those. He begins to speak of God's kingdom. That is the realm of God's rule. And in verse 13 he says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. You see, the unique reality about God's kingdom is that it will endure forever. Forever. The kingdoms of the world, they rise and fall. They come and they go, but God's kingdom will last forever. And at the very end of, the, of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, the vision that we see is that God's kingdom, the realm of His rule, His good, life-giving, beautiful rule, will actually come and fill this earth from sea to sea. The way the writer of Revelation actually says is, the kingdom of this earth has become the kingdom of the Christ and of our God. It's an amazing vision that one day God's kingdom and his rule will come to fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. And this moves David to worship the Lord. So we see his sovereignty, his power, the fact that he is a king robed in glorious splendor of your majesty, as he says in verse 5. But also there's another aspect of his character, of who he is, That moves him to worship, and that is of his love. Look at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Does that remind you of anything? Remember a couple weeks ago in Exodus 34, Moses says to God, Show me your glory. And God passes by and announces his name, and what does he say? The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and rich in love. He's repeating what was revealed to Moses in Exodus. Now think just for a minute about those qualities. I mean, this is at the very core of who God is. He is gracious. He is filled with grace. He sees broken people. He sees needy people. And He is moved towards them. Compassion. Look what he says in verse 9. The Lord is good to all and has compassion on all that he has made. Another aspect of his love. His tender care. God sees misery and his heart is moved with compassion. We don't often think about God as having emotions like this, do we? It's we don't meditate on the word enough. God is filled with emotions. And at the very core of who he is is compassion. Mercy, love. He goes on to draw out different aspects of this love. Second part of verse 13, he says, The Lord is faithful to all His promises and loving toward all He has made. All the promises that God has made towards people, He will be faithful forever. And those promises are astounding. We also see in verse 18, The Lord is near to all who call on Him. In verse 19, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. And you got to meditate on these things. Not just pass them over, but begin to imagine God is like this? You mean he is filled with love for me? In spite of all that's true of me? That his heart is inclined towards me? That he sees each one of us in the circumstances that you find yourself in, and in the ugliness that is really true about your heart, and He is moved in compassion towards you. Do you believe that? To the degree that you do, you will begin to worship. you see how this changes prayer a little bit? If I begin with praise and I begin to start prayer with an understanding of who God is, that is that He is all-powerful, but yet filled with love and grace for me, He cares about where I'm at. You see that changes prayer a little bit? You see how the anxieties that we can have in prayer begin to decrease a little bit? Do you ever notice in prayer how, something? this often happens for me, I'll go, I find myself in some, very difficult situation in my life and I go in prayer to the Lord and I find in prayer as I'm listing out my problems and I'm talking about everything that I'm going through my anxiety actually goes up have you ever experienced this in prayer? prayer is not in that moment something that's, that's unburdening me and filling me with rest and peace rather I'm getting more and more upset more and more anxious why is that? because I'm not actually praying I'm actually worrying in God's direction you ever worry in God's direction? How does beginning with praise change that? If you begin prayer with a meditation on the fact that, wait a minute, I'm talking to the king. He owns everything. That situation in my life that looks so big, that person in my life that seems to be after me, that this thing in my life that looks like it's going to fall apart right in my face, that's actually under his control because you see, he's the king. And not only is he the king, he is my loving father. He loves me. He's filled with compassion towards me. He is gracious towards me. How does that change prayer? In every way imaginable. So David marvels at who God is, but also what he's done. Notice this in beginning of verse 4 through 6. Look at what he says, what he repeats here. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. What's he repeating there? Over and over and over he is repeating... What God has done, works, deeds, acts, these are what God has done. It it shows us that God is active in our world. Our God is not a God who creates the world and steps back and just lets it be. That's actually a very common view of God in our culture and in our world. That's called deism. You know that God's like a great clockmaker and He made everything, and He designed everything, but then He just steps back and lets it run. He's distant. He's detached from it. But the scriptures show us something drastically different from that. They show us a God who is so intimately involved and at work in every realm of His creation, that He is moving into creation, that He is moving into people's lives, that He is doing things and He is intervening. In so many different ways. And what moves David to praise is the fact that God has acted in history. Now, as we look in the scriptures for God's acts, there's three basic categories through which we look at his actions creation, that is, God making everything, that's how it talks about his works and his deeds. There is providence. That is His sustaining and upholding everything. And then there is redemption. We see just a hint of creation in here. But really, this idea of God acting in creation is saturated throughout the Bible and throughout the Psalms. It's a major aspect of praise to meditate on the reality of God acting to create. Let me give you one example. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is astounding in the ways that it looks into God's power to create. And here's what the psalmist says. You knit me together in my mother's womb. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Before I was created, your eyes saw my unformed body. What's he praising there? He is praising God's work of creation and saying... You, the living God, came into my mother's womb and knit me together like a beautiful creator. Before I was ever made, you saw my unformed body. What's he doing? He is meditating on God's action and creation, specifically God creating him, and he's moved to worship. And the Psalms not only look at God's creation of us, but his creation of absolutely everything that exists. It's an avenue of praise to God. There's another aspect of his work, and that is of his providence. Providence is a, a fancy word meaning how God provides for and sustains and upholds everything. And our passage mentions something pretty astounding here in verses 15 through 16. Look at how he looks at God's acts, his mighty acts in upholding all things. Look at what he says here. The eyes of all look to you And you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. What's he talking about there? He's marveling at the fact that God feeds absolutely everything that is alive in the entire earth. It's Pretty amazing, right? Every bird, every worm, every beast of the field, and every person in here... And in fact, every person in the entire earth is fed three meals a day by the living God. Whether you see it or not, whether you recognize it or not, that's a part of His grace. He feeds everything. He opens His hand to satisfy the needs and the longing of every living thing. You see, as you begin to just... You need a little imagination here, right? That's what He's doing. He's using imagination to just sit and for a moment ponder God feeding every living thing. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? You see how that begins to move you to worship? Our hearts are beating at this moment, not because they're just happening to beat, but because God is making it beat and pump blood throughout your body. We're breathing right now because God is supplying oxygen and allowing our lungs to take it in. Everything has order because God is holding all the electrons together in every little tiny atom. It's pretty crazy, right? Take that right there. Take a little pinch of that and stick it between your cheek and gum. Just soak on it. And imagine what it does to you as it leads you to worship. Absolutely astounding. See that's what David is doing here. He's just stepping back and he's just saying I want to look with real eyes. I want to look at reality and I want to begin to see the reality of who you are and your providence. But there's another aspect of his work that moves both the psalmist and all the psalms to praise and that is his work in redemption. Redemption is God's work of rescue. It's His coming into the broken, those who are in misery, those who are struggling. And redemption is God coming and rescuing and redeeming people out of those situations. We see a number of parts where He speaks of it here in this passage. Just take, for example, the second half of verse 19. He says, He hears their cry and He saves them. This aspect of God saving is an aspect of His work of redemption. And probably more than any of his other acts does this glorify him most. The backdrop of this is God's salvation of his people, is rescuing his people throughout salvation history. We just looked at the book of Exodus, the big, huge, defining event of the Israelites where God comes to redeem his people. His people were in slavery, and he comes and he rescues his people out of slavery. He brings them to himself, and he brings them into the promised land. God's acts of redemption. And probably what most glorifies Him about His acts of redemption is that it is always of undeserving people. See how that magnifies His grace? Over and over and over in the Bible, God's people turn away from Him. They're not deserving. They depart from Him. And what does God do? He continually comes to redeem and to rescue His people. His greatest acts that bring Him glory Are his acts of redemption. You see, his works also change prayer as you begin to praise them and meditate on them. You know, the situations that we're facing in our life tend to get a little bit smaller whenever we begin with a remembering of what God has done. You see, and that's what David is calling us to do here. He's inviting us to join him. Let's remember. Let's meditate on what God has done. He is a God who rescues people. He's rescued His people. He delivers. And so as then as I go in prayer to bring before Him my needs, I'm bolstered. I begin to say, wait a minute. I'm coming before a God not only who has the power to do this, but who does this kind of thing all the time. It's who He is. See, prayer it changes, praise changes our prayer. And that is what the psalmist invites us to do. So finally, how do we do this? How do we understand the psalm in light of Jesus? Because that's what we have to do. We have to read every single passage in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. And I think in this way, this is one way to read it in light of Jesus. David here in this psalm marvels at who God is and what He's done. He's moved to worship and praise as He meditates upon those things. But He could not even fathom what has been revealed to us. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says this, he's quoting Isaiah, where Isaiah in Isaiah 65 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no... no um, No no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. But here's what what, uh, Paul says right after that. But He has revealed it to us by His Spirit. You see what he's saying there? You see, Isaiah was saying in the Old Testament, we could never fathom what God has planned for us. And Paul quotes that passage and he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's been revealed to us. What is it talking about? The coming of Jesus Christ. You see, David could never have imagined all of the things that he knew about God, how those things would come to their climax in the coming of Jesus Christ. You see, David looks at God and he says, you are almighty, you are powerful, you are loving, you are gracious, but in the coming of Jesus, all of those qualities of God get hooked up to steroids and just jump out at us. In the person of Jesus, we see a king with absolute power who can speak to the storm and it is immediately calm, who can speak and things happen, but yet at the same time one who is so filled with compassion and love and mercy that he would take little children in his arms, that he would weep over Jerusalem, that his friend Lazarus would die and he would weep over the fact of his dying and his passing, but then in the next moment, raise him from the dead. You see, in the person of Jesus, all of those qualities of God that moved David to worship are fully and completely embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And even beyond that, his acts of redemption. David can never imagine of what God would do through Christ, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God Himself would enter into the world in the person of His Son, take on the guilt and shame of sin Himself, and then rise to give life to all those who would belong to Him. David could never conceive of this. So our praise should eclipse even what we see King David worshiping over here. As the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, in the person and work of Jesus, we see the unsearchable, incomparable riches of God's grace given to us in Christ. More reason than ever to pray so that we might live and exist for the praise of His glorious grace. So you see, as followers of Jesus, seeing all that God has done for us in Jesus should make our praise even greater than King David's. So let me just close with this. It's an application. Prayer, for us, is central. It's how we relate to God. It's how we know Him. It's how we grow in our relationship with Him. But praise is how we pray. Praise is how our hearts are changed. Literally, as we behold Jesus and as we praise Him for all that He is for us, our hearts and our affections are changed. And that's what transforms all prayer in our life. So let me stop right there for just a moment and give us an opportunity to respond. As we think about praise, as we see what moves King David to praise and worship in the psalm, how does that strike you? How does that move you? Let's hear from one another. That you would awaken our sleepy heart.